Hey everyone, Brock here. We're going to do something a little bit different today. I'm actually going to read through a talk that I wrote before I hide beyond Kolob, actually. it's It was the last talk I gave before I did that, and so it has a little bit of sentimental value, but it also has a lot of content that, you know, I think I can stand behind still. And so we're going to read it. I'd love to hear what you guys think about it in the response, emails, comments, however you guys let me know what you think. So we'll start with the intro just because it's a good way to introduce myself here. I haven't done much of that. Anyway, here it goes. I decided my major on a coin toss but can't decide what flavor of ice cream to buy at the store. I graduated with a bachelor's in electrical engineering in three years because I wanted to take it easy my last year of college. I am also the proud chef and founder of the Burger Crusade a hamburger stand with the worldwide mission of redeeming hamburger patties from their lost and fallen state. I'm a walking whirlwind, and I've learned to embrace and enjoy the chaos. My name is Brock. I'm 24. I work on airplanes by the airport, and I'm excited to get to know you. I'm excited to think about hard topics with you, and I'm excited for the growth we'll all love to hate together. So... In this talk, I was asked to speak about conversion, but since I'm not fully converted, I mean, who is, right? I decided I'm not really an authoritative source on the matter. So I figured I'd just tell you first about how I failed to be converted, and then how I'm at least a little bit less unconverted today. <clears throat> Hopefully, you'll be less stupid than I was. We're going to talk about my addiction to God. Before we talk about my addiction to the church in greater detail, we've got to establish a common perspective. To do that, we're going to take a systems analysis approach to the concept of addiction. Because, after all, addiction is a system. It's a chemical system, a neural system, a behavioral system, and all too frequently, a social system. All of these systems create a system of systems. I know, you just can't get away from the word, can you? Anyway, the system of systems all work together to keep us in its feral grasp by constructing a complex web of feedback loops, all of which compel us deeper and deeper into the abyss. A feedback loop is a series of interconnected events and states that eventually return to some form of its initial state. Think of homework, for example. In an ideal world, we do homework to get graded, which is a form of feedback. We then use that feedback to inform our performance on future homework, which is the loop portion. There are two kinds of feedback loops, positive and negative. We typically think of a positive feedback loop as making something better, and a negative feedback loop as making something worse. In technical terms, that's wrong. In its simplest manifestations, a positive feedback loop makes things bigger, exacerbates deviation from the norm. That's a fancy way of saying it makes things bigger, not necessarily better. A negative feedback loop returns to homeostasis or returns things to normal. It doesn't make things worse, necessarily. Let's look at some examples. Your body temperature is hopefully a negative feedback loop. If you're cold, you shiver to warm up. If you're hot, then you sweat to cool down. Investing is hopefully a positive feedback loop. You invest money you hopefully earn more money, then hopefully you invest that more money that you get. A room's loudness is, too. 
The louder I speak, the louder others will speak, which will once again increase the volume with which I speak. Of course, there are limiting factors to that. It doesn't progress towards infinity, but it is a form of feedback, a form of positive feedback. The gospel of Jesus Christ is generally and hopefully a positive feedback loop as well. The more you adhere to its teachings today, hopefully the easier it is tomorrow. <clears throat> Unfortunately, so is addiction. The more one engages in addictive behavior today, the more likely it is that they will do so tomorrow. Though chemistry, genetics, and environmental variables all play their significant part, I want to simplify things and say for that for the purpose of this conversation, an addiction is an action that is continued despite evidence that such action creates the problems it's employed to solve. In other words, it's an action that creates a positive feedback loop, limiting our vision, agency, and capacity for joy, such as the following examples. An alcoholic who drinks to quote-unquote cure his hangover. He's the stereotypical addict. I think we can all agree on that. He has limited control over his self, his life, or his future. Um, another example is a lie that creates more cover-up lies in order to maintain its integrity. Lying is still viewed as wrong, but it's a more subtle culprit because it gives all of us the illusion of control, right? The next idea of addiction here is a form of exercise that ritually reinforces the idea that our body is fundamentally unacceptable. There are certain people who have mental conditions that manifest themselves as such. I don't remember what it's called. I'm sorry. But it is a poisonous belief, right? The idea that our body is fundamentally unacceptable is a poisonous belief. But it manifests itself under the guise of positive action, which is very dangerous. Another one, um, I have fallen into this too often, is, for example, baking cookies for everyone and their dog because I'm stressed about homework I have to do. I mean, we're all happy about the cookies, right? But it easily turns into a selfish and self-aggrandizing escape from a stress that would ultimately push me towards actually doing the homework that I need to do. I may or may not be doing that with this podcast at the moment, but we're going to return to the statement that not all addictions are the same shade of wrong, but all of them put distance between who we are right now and who we could be. They all separate us from God. One of my most all-consuming addictions was actually to the religious aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ironic, isn't it? I mean, I managed to find a way to pervert the gospel itself into a damning habit. Then again, the Pharisees managed to twist God's word to justify the murder of his own son, right? So I guess anything's possible when it comes to perverting the way of the Lord. So, how did my religious observance become an unhealthy addiction? We'll start with scripture reading. I was not socially gifted through my education years. People have told me now that it's changed and I feel like I have friends now, so that's definitely a plus. I'm not saying this for pity's sake, um, but at the time I did struggle to make and keep friends, so I often felt very lonely. I came to the conclusion that if I couldn't have friends, my relationship with God could make up for it. Spoiler alert, I was wrong. Anyway, because I didn't have friends, and I never did any homework in school, that's a different conversation, I had a lot of time on my hands. I spent that time studying the gospel, studying the scriptures, studying the prophets. I spent hours every day poring over the scriptures, general conference, studying, learning, striving desperately to replace human connection 
with divine connection. Here's what really happened. Well, you wouldn't believe it, but because I spent more time alone, I felt more lonely. I mean, sure, I was reading the Word of God, but I was still alone. But instead of confronting, accepting, or resolving my loneliness, I fled from it, burying myself deeper and deeper into the Scriptures. Because I was battling crippling loneliness while reading, however, the Spirit's voice was suppressed, and I couldn't feel God speak to me through His Word. Ironically, my desperate attempt to replace friendship with God distanced me from God Himself, my peers around me, and an awareness of my own feelings. See how that's the beginnings of an addiction? To make things worse, when others realized how much I knew and studied the scriptures, they were amazed and complimented me on it. Now, not only was I distancing myself from my peers, God himself, and my own feelings, but I was praised for it. Now we've got another step, reinforcing the bad behavior, the dangerous behavior at the very least. Since God wouldn't fill the empty void of loneliness, I had no choice but to replace both God and authentic friendship with feigned admiration. It's looking pretty bad, isn't it? Because of the admiration, feigned or not, that I received, I became dependent upon the daily hours of study in order to sustain myself with what little positive feedback I received. That led to feelings of worthlessness, fear, and a resurgence of loneliness every day that I didn't study as much as I could have. Which you would guess it was pretty much every day, even though I did study hours each day. In an addictive cycle, we call that a withdrawal, far as I know. Next was my addiction to service. Of course, it's hard to broadcast scriptural knowledge in an everyday conversation with someone, so positive feedback was slow in coming. The obvious solution to the challenge of broadcasting? Service. I mean, it's easy to invite other people to join me in service, right? When they declined, they complimented me on my conversion and on my goodness, giving me my much-needed feelings of worth, false as they really were. If they said yes, I had the opportunity to pretend I had a friend for a day. We had a win-win situation. Interestingly, however, as much as people appreciate gifts given to them, they struggle to have the opportunity to truly appreciate the giver of those gifts, unless that giver asks or manages to receive something in return. Once again, service quickly became an addiction for me. The more I served, the less people valued me, and the more lonely I felt. But the more I could pretend that I wasn't alone, thus magnifying the, lo the loneliness that I suffered. As service became more and more desperate, I realized once again that no amount of service would resolve my loneliness. Once again, I turned deeper to the Lord. I attended the temple and fasted at least weekly. I did family history and participated in every other church-related activity and effort because I needed the Lord to make up for my failure in every other aspect of my life. He didn't. I am convinced that no amount of religious practice for any length of time would have ever invoked any amount of his power to involve himself in my problems. I needed to confront and solve my own problems. Each addiction seemed to be an attempt to sidestep, shortcut, or even outright flee a real problem that I was facing. Every time I did so, however, I found myself even more vulnerable to those very real threats of my very real problems. In each of my addictions, I would follow the words of the prophets, the word of God, and try to turn to the Lord. I'd attempt to let him carry my burdens and my weight. 
We've all heard the beautiful poem about the footprints in the sand, right? Isn't the Savior supposed to carry us through our hardest times? Wrong. I mean, at least for me. Probably for some of you, too. My religious addictions, my attempts to let the Lord carry my burdens, took me to dark places. We've all been there. We've all looked into the abyss and felt the invitation. We all know what it looks like. So I don't need to describe it. But slowly, as the months and years dragged on, I gave up on the Savior. He wasn't going to rescue me. Neither were my parents, bishop, or anybody else for that matter. If I wanted out of the depths of despair, I and I alone was going to have to pick up the full weight of my own misery and slowly trudge upward. Almost poetically, I feel like the gospel was never about turning toward the Savior to leave our burden at his feet, but about turning into a Savior by picking up the cross at ours. At the very least, we can each shoulder the full weight and dread of our own flaws, our own sins, whatever you want to call them, whether we know about them or not. Once we can manage that, and after enough practice, eventually we can set our sights on taking upon ourselves the weight and dread of our friends, and maybe our family, and maybe progressively up into the entire world. Christ's atonement wasn't the perfect scapegoat. It was the perfect example that we all yearn to follow. To summarize the things I learned, the weight and burden of my life is my own. Nobody else will pick it up and carry it. Nobody can, not even Christ. The burden of my sins is my own. Nobody else will pick it up and carry it. Nobody can, not even Christ. The weight of my problems is my own. Nobody else will pick it up and carry it. Nobody can, not even Christ. The weight of my misery is my own. I hope you can see there where this is going by now. It's a pretty, now, that's a pretty ugly situation, isn't it? Fortunately, Christ paved the way. He gave the perfect example. He didn't, and for me, he doesn't, solve my problems or lighten my load. But he gives me hope that I can carry my burdens as well as he carried his. Maybe even I can begin to carry the sins of the world too in my own way. In that way, I'm becoming converted into a savior after the manner of the savior. Once again, I can't speak for all of you. But I know that my life doesn't touch heaven at Disneyland. I don't experience seemingly divine power when browsing YouTube or even when reading the scriptures or attending the temple. I experience the power of heaven every single time I identify a burden and lift it. Heaven can grace my life when I clean my room, or I can feel its power when strengthening a relationship with a parent sibling, or friend. What's the difference, then, between the addictive service I performed before and the redemptive service I tend to accidentally stumble into now? I don't know exactly. But I do think there's a lesson to be learned from the fact that Christ first carried his own cross up his own hill. Once there, he died for the sins of the world. 
he criticizes the Pharisees because they were unwilling to cleanse the inner vessel. What demons lurk inside of you? What are you hiding from? Not all of them have to be solved, and not all of them can be, right? I'm never going to be the social butterfly. I'm a social butterfly, but that's because I'm not good at it. I'm never going to be charismatic, right? But they should never be avoided, hidden, or fled from. Rather, we each need to shoulder the cross of the disaster we each call our life. And I believe that despite the pain, we can each comprehend an inkling of Christ's joy.